Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. Chris Larvey, a professor of orthopaedic and tropical surgery and consultant orthopaedic and spine surgeon. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Very nice to be here, Frank. Before we go into um, your your medical and surgical journey, tell me a little bit about yourself um, before medical school. What, What was your upbringing like? Well, my early upbringing was actually in Uganda, where my dad was a surgeon so you can say I inherited a love of surgery. Mm-hmm. And my, my dad worked in Uganda in the days before independence and, in fact, during independence. So a uh, great privilege to be there at the time of uh, handing the country back to the Ugandan government. Um, and then our family returned to Kent, where I spent the rest of my childhood. And I went to medical school in St. Bartholomew's in London. And how was it uh, studying at St. Bartholomew's? Um, well, we didn't do much studying. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, those, those were the days when you had to pass a, 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 a few key exams. And in between, you more or less did what you want. And, uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of us did a lot of sport. I played some rugby, rode and did a bit of tennis yourself and your brothers are all surgeons was that a conscious effort from your parents no not not at all really i mean i went to 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 barts medical college and thoroughly enjoyed it there and although i didn't um, twist the arms of of any of my brothers my uh, next brother down uh decided that he'd like to to um do medicine as well and so did the one after him and we all went to Bards and um, so I, I I chose orthopedic surgery my uh, next brother down chose eye surgery and my youngest brother is an ENT surgeon so in one sense you couldn't have a more varied a more varied group within surgery although again very interestingly what we actually do when we get into the operating theatre is very similar. Each each of the three of us sits down. We bring in a, a, a Carl Zeiss microscope, and I do minimal access spine surgery using a microscope. My eye surgeon brother does uh, um, quite a lot of paediatric surgery, again, using a microscope, and uh, my ENT surgeon brother does... Uh, a lot of middle ear surgery um, again sitting down together sitting down at the table with a microscope so there we are we've all we've we've all regressed to the mean yeah feel like you've gone your separate ways and then actually all come back and looking exactly. down that, that microscope uh, and so exactly. can you shine a, a light on on a bit more about you and your brothers and growing up in in uganda that must have been that must have been difficult at times well as a child you I suppose unless things are terrible, you tend to have happy memories. And I have mm. wonderful memories of uh, lovely Ugandan summers on the lawn 
playing with playing with my brothers and my sisters. I've got three sisters as well as three brothers. Mm. Actually, so we had a big had a big family. Um, so if there were if there were issues, um, they uh, I I didn't pick them up. So what age was it that you moved back to to Kent? One of the sort of the biggest things that I wanted to talk to you about today was what I expect was one of your biggest decisions, which was to go yourself as a qualified surgeon to Africa and work there for for a decade. Can you talk to me about how you made that decision? Yeah, yes, I can. Um, So I married relatively late in life. I married Vicky, who's a GP. She was a GP trainee, some eight years younger than me. And I married her just before I got my consultant post in central London. So there we were in the mid-90s, no, the early 1990s. I was working as a consultant in um, at University College Hospital doing um, a lot of joint replacement surgery and some hand and upper limb surgery and some private work as well. And my wife uh, qualified as a GP. We didn't have any kids and um, we were pretty, uh, uh, pretty comfortably off, really. Mm. And we heard of the little country of Malawi. I had visited it before, had visited before because my sister had, had worked over there. Uh, but we heard of the little country of Malawi, which at that time, uh, in the mid-1990s, had no orthopedic surgeons. I mean, I don't mean just half a dozen, zero wow. for 12 million people. And um, we did. A, I did a little calculation and uh, worked out that London inside the M25 had about 10 to 12 million people and had about 500 orthopedic surgeons, whereas Malawi had about 10 to 12 million people and had zero. Mm. So we, we took a, a little holiday. My wife was was heavily pregnant with our first baby and um, went to Malawi for a week and had a look around and decided that uh, we'd, we'd like to go and work there. And we, you, you know, you don't plan your whole life in one step. We So we initially planned to go there for a year or two, um, lend a hand, do a bit of work with no particular thought to the future. And that's how it started off. So we... Um, so I spoke. Well, I spoke to my colleagues at uh, at University College Hospital and the Middlesex Hospital, my uh, uh, orthopedic surgical colleagues, and said, um, "Would it be okay, guys, for me to go um, um, just for a year or so, maybe?" And yeah, and they were they were very very kind and said, um, "Okay, we'll get a locum, and uh, we'll see how long you want to stay, and we'll keep the job open for you when you come back." Hmm. So I had I had a lot of support from my colleagues, and you ended up staying there ten years. We we end, yes. Eventually, we took up. We we started off there, and we decided to sign a four year contract. At the end of the four years, uh, we'd already started several big projects, and um, felt we needed another four years to run them. And at the end of that, we thought, well, we've been here eight years, may as well make it ten. And um, yeah, so it stayed a decade. And in fact, in the end, didn't come back to um, London. We came back to Oxford. 
and you said there that there were there's about 12 million people in in Malawi and and had zero orthopedic surgeons you then go over and and now it has one the need or the want for orthopedic surgery just completely overwhelming when you first got there it's very interesting it was over, it was overwhelming let's 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 put let's just put it another way because there hadn't been an orthopedic a proper orthopedic service there for many years people really didn't expect one mm. and so people when they broke their ankles or had a car crash and broke their femur didn't search out um for an orthopedic surgeon because there hadn't been one the, the vast majority were treated in um, the country's district hospitals and the staff of the district hospitals were generally the vast majority of staff were generally non-medically qualified um, paramedic level clinicians some of whom were really brilliant mm. i mean some of whom did um, I, I watched them and assisted them did amazing cesarean sections um, deep out in the districts and uh, we had a group of of uh, these these non-medically qualified clinical officers who uh, uh, took an interest in orthopedics and we called them the orthopedic clinical officers and so they were non-doctors but uh, they could deal with they could deal in a reasonable way with the majority of fractures that, that came their way and <clears throat> actually it, it was a very interesting sort of philosophical change in in how you look at something in how it certainly is as, as clinicians as to how you look at uh, an issue here in the here in the UK and and what tends to happen in rich countries is that um, specialized surgeons tend to say well we're the only people who can deal with these you know the rest of you stand back I'll sort it out if you go into if you go into a, a, a UK hospital with a shoulder fracture the hip replacement surgeon will say well I, I've no idea I, I don't deal with shoulders the, um, the the hand surgeon and the spine surgeon will say, "I, I don't deal with shoulders." And um, there will be there will be a, a person who who who, who takes a, an interest and is, is skilled and trained in shoulder surgery. Um, <clears throat> that's sort of that's how our surgical services are going in the UK. Um, in Malawi, we looked upon it in a different way. We um, someone would come into a hospital with an ankle fracture, a wrist fracture. And rather than saying, this person needs an expert, we said, well, what needs doing? Who's the who's reasonably qualified and uh, has got some experience in dealing with it? And actually, if you take that attitude, a lot of things like a closed ankle fracture, they're actually not that difficult to manage. And I could probably take I could probably take um, a, a half a dozen medical students and we could do a weekend course Saturday and Sunday, just looking at how you manage an ankle fracture, how you put the plaster cast on, how long you leave it for, um, how you um, how you follow the patient up. And I, I think that you would, would 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 be able to give a very good service. And so. 90, we, we, we worked out that almost 90% of injuries that happen to people can be dealt with by someone who doesn't necessarily have to have a six-year postgraduate training. Can you sort of 
talk to me about what you managed to achieve over there in in the ten years. I, I know you did a lot. Yeah, well, the the, the first thing that I got involved in was um, restarting a training for these paramedic um, orthopedic clinical officers. Some had been trained in the in in the decade before I came by a wonderful, um, sadly now died Canadian orthopedic surgeon called Edward Blair. And he'd set up the training, but he'd quite long since gone. So I managed to get a grant from the British government and we re-established the orthopedic clinical officer training. And it w- it was great fun actually getting uh, yeah, mm. young men and women um, who had a little bit of a health background. They, they might have been in nursing or in uh, uh, medical assistance. And then t- we, we gave them a, an 18 month training in common orthopedic conditions and how they and how and the best ways of dealing with them. And the best of them were really brilliant. The best of them gave you a service that uh, um, you'd be you'd be very happy to receive in a, in a, in a UK hospital. We, we concentrate on conservative treatment rather than um, rather than operative. Um, um, the vast majority was were like any group of people were sort of middle range and uh, and of course like any group of people there were some bad ones and um, that's, that's 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 how it is. Uh, so that was the first sort of big project that I got involved in, and the second big project that I got involved in was then working with the new medical graduates. The me- the country started a medical school in 1990 and when I arrived there in 1995 um, the first graduates were just about to come out of the medical school and in the first year of medicine they had 12 graduates and um, then it it slowly went up and it's now it's now I think between 50 and 100 so it's it's going up considerably the first year we had 12 and uh, uh, I assumed all 12 would want to do surgery because it's the best you know, the best career, the queen of careers. But none of them were interested in surgery. They all wanted to move into public health and um, strange practices. <clears throat> but um, over the next couple of years, uh, a, a significant number of, of the, uh, the graduates wanted to do surgery. And it was an issue of trying to set up some system in a very unresourced country where we could deliver um, a postgraduate training in surgery. And I don't just mean orthopedic surgery, I mean all, all branches of surgery. And I was, well, we were, uh, we were very fortunate in, in surgery in sub-Saharan Africa in those days because the first week in December, all the surgeons of all specialties from, from the countries from pretty much from Ethiopia down to um, Mozambique, used to meet in one of the capital cities once a year and have a surgical meeting, um, meet up with friends, talk over difficult cases, have case conferences, um, discussions, cups of tea, glasses of beer. Mm. And it was a, it was a, friendly, a friendly group of um, 100 or so surgeons, and we'd meet every December. And um, a lot of the countries in the in the region ha- had similar issues. Some of them, some of them actually had postgraduate training programs, but um, 
not all of them had um, uh, functioning postgrad training programs. And so over the course of a few years, we, we had the, the dream of setting up a regional college of surgeons. You know, Malawi would want to train people in orthopedic surgery, but there was just me. It would want to train people in ENT surgery, but there weren't any ENT surgeons. So if a bunch of countries could get together, we could develop a training scheme where people could move around the region and get what I felt was actually a really good training. And so in 1999, we set up the, the COSEXA, College of Surgeons of East, Central and Southern Africa, um, a great college which has actually just gone from strength to strength to strength and now it's been going for 23 years and um, they just had their big annual meeting it's always the first week in December in uh, this time it was in Namibia and Namibia has joined I forgot to say that uh, we started off with a, just a small group of countries but it's got bigger and bigger each year as uh, more and more countries think say this is a this is a great this is a great institution let's join and namibia namibia is one of our newest members and uh, so several hundred surgeons descended to namibia and we have almost a thousand um young surgeons male and female all in training across the across all the countries we have um, quite a rigorous series set of exams which a lot of which they do online and in their own country. But um, they come together in December and we do the clinicals um, in in person in, uh, in whichever city is hosting the, the organization. So COSEXA, as, as I said, as it has gone from strength to strength. My part was smallish, just getting the thing going. The first, I was on the council to, for the first 10 years of the college and uh, for the first five, I ran and organized the exams and um, they, were, they, were, they were hard work in those early days and now we've got very good teams that run the exams and uh, I have to say each year it does get better and better. So that was the second big project that I got involved in and uh, I have to say the one that I find the most rewarding when I look back of uh, being, being part of uh, working with great colleagues from from countries all around great and amazingly dedica dedicated colleagues working together to, uh, to 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 improve training and over the years over the 23 years we have produced um hundred thousands of surgeons do you miss being out there i miss uh, my colleagues out there um and i I do miss the work, but I enjoy being in Oxford and I enjoy the work that we have here. And I, I mean, I, I enjoy being, 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 being part of both worlds, really, at the moment. And would you ever go back? I, I would um, consider going back. Obviously, I've now, I'm now married. I've got, um, I've got kids. My kids are... Uh, some of them have left. Well, one's left home. Two still, two still in the nest, and it's something we'd have to look. We have to look at as a family. But um, I certainly would be um, open to going back. Mm. Um, 
as you as you get older in surgery, or as you get older in any profession, really, your role changes. Um, there's there's young there's young keen um, um, men and women in their sort of thirties and forties who are, are there to grind away at the clinical work. Uh, when you're in your mid sixties, like I am, you you you're, you're often better in uh, uh, an administrative management oversight um, mentoring type role and that's probably what I'd do if I returned okay and talking about maybe when you're a bit younger and you you're out there can you talk us through what sort of surgery you'd be doing yes the overwhelming um, majority of patients with uh, who present to hospitals with orthopedic conditions are, are a result of trauma Road, tra road traffic accidents, um, falls out of trees, um, some some violence, and trauma is trauma absolutely dominates every um, the surgical department of, of of every hospital in sub-Saharan Africa. In the um, men's ward of the hospital where I worked in a town called Blantyre, we usually had ninety to a hundred young working age men with femoral fractures, horrible compound tibial fractures, um, well, fractures of all, of all long bones, uh, a significant number with spinal injuries, some of whom had uh, neurological complications. And so that, that, was, the, that was the bread and butter of, um, of dealing, with, dealing with trauma. And trauma, as anywhere, anywhere in the world, in Oxford, in Wales, in London, um, trauma—I tra say trauma dominates. Trauma um, dominates the theatres because you've got to deal with it. It's the, the patient is bleeding. The patient has got an open wound, and non-urgent elective surgery um, just has to wait. And one of the big issues for the National Health Service is how you deal with that balance of trauma versus elective surgery. You can do it in different ways. In some of the hospitals in the UK have set up as we only do elective surgery. So if you've got a car crash, go, go somewhere else. And that's one way of protecting, ring fencing the, the elective surgery beds. Um, we weren't able to do that. Uh, uh, so well in um, in Blantyre when I was there, and very little in terms of elective surgery actually happened. We were so busy with trauma. Um, while out there, I got particularly interested in children with uh, crippling conditions that could be reversed. That is, children with uh, deformities of their legs, particularly of their feet, club feet, bow legs, vitamin D deficiency non-vitamin D um, um, deficient rickets, kids with uh, osteomyelitis that had destroyed their bones or with, with infection that had damaged their growth plates so that their bones grew um, in a distorted fashion or, osteom or, or infections that had destroyed their joints so they had fused or, or damaged joints. Um, I got really interested in the, in that group of kids, um, interested in, in the surgery and the techniques of surgery to get those kids walking again. 
but also interested in the the life-changing nature of such surgery. Um, if you've got a six or seven-year-old who's got uh, a 90-degree deformity in one or both knees, they can't get around properly. They may have to hobble with a stick or crawl. They don't play with the other kids. They often get excluded. They can't go to school. They don't get an education. They then don't get a job. And um, their, their, their life is, is wrecked by a physical impairment that actually you could correct with a one to two hour operation. And the, the plight, if you like, of, of those kids um, weighed heavily upon me and, and really interested me. And, and I felt, well, you know, they're just at the beginning of their life. Um, it's not that difficult to do the corrective surgery to get them walking again, but it's very difficult to get any spaces in the government hospital with, you know, with um, teenagers and people in their 20s coming in with broken tibias after a motorbike crash. And so <clears throat> with uh, a colleague of mine, we had a dream of building a hospital specially for these kids. Um, we'd, and uh, it would be an elective orthopedic hospital. And uh, we had a dream, we designed it, we got a local architect to design it for us and we costed it out. And then we searched for the money. I think, never thinking it would actually happen. But if you don't try, um, think things will never happen. And uh, we did, we managed to raise the funds from um, a lot of the capital funds from a, a trust in the UK called the Bite Trust in Woking, UK. And we got in touch with an, uh, an, an American Christian organization that had a similar hospital and it had been going for a few years in Kenya, which I visited and got in touch with their, their chief executive um, president and said, please, can we join together and do something in Malawi? And uh, to cut a long story short, we did. So, and we, uh, and we built a 50 bed, two operating theater, uh, now three operating theaters, um, kids, kids hospital. We built it um, with, say, with 50 beds for the kids, and the kids would either sleep in the same bed as their mother, or sometimes the mothers slept underneath. Um, it was a big ward, noisy, but noisy, a lot of chattering, but also a lot of fun, and a lot of excitement as uh, one by one, and after their operations, these kids would get on their legs again and um, start to walk around and run. And you knew, and their mothers knew, that their kids' lives had changed and these kids would now get to school. These kids would be able to play a little sport. They'd be able to climb trees with their friends. And it was incredibly rewarding. We also built a 15-bed um, private ward with uh, individual rooms. And the aim was that uh, we would do some um, fee-paying operations on uh, on adults who wanted hip replacements, knee replacements, etc., and um, raise and, and and by that method raise money to help fund the children's surgery. 
seeing a child walk for the first time, knowing how much of their life you've changed now for the better, and knowing that you're the one responsible, how does that feel? It's an it's it's a, an incredibly rewarding feeling. It's an incredibly rewarding feeling, um, knowing that uh, the, the, the 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 little life has changed its course. Uh, I tell you, even more rewarding is when you've worked with um, when you've um, taken on trainees and worked with them, um, showing them new techniques and ways of doing it. And then you see them, their results, and that's uh, and you see their their faces beaming with the with pr the procedures that they've done. Um, it's rewarding to do the surgery yourself. But it's more rewarding, even more rewarding to uh, to be mentoring and training others who, who who take it on. And we have been really fortunate to develop a team of, of, of amazing surgeons. Um, uh, both from Malawi and some from surrounding countries um, who've uh, who work there. You talked about the the fact that the plight of these children really affected you, and you also earlier said that when you're working in London, you were quite sort of comfortably off in terms of life and and had what was was a very you know nice life. What was it, do you think, or, or why was it you that was the one to go out there and make such significant change? Interesting. I, I I've become a lot more interested and involved in, if you like, the softer side and the qualitative side of of, of surgery. Um, as an orthopedic surgeon, initially you you look at a little girl in front of you with deformed legs. You think, okay, we could just got to change those angles, get those legs straight. But you don't see you don't see the life of that little girl, and. Um, we've been doing through our group in Oxford and also through um, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, qualitative studies of those kids. And uh, uh, my eyes have been opened. Um, the, um, you know, if you're a child born with a deformity or who develops a deformity, you do get abused. You, you don't get to go to school like the other kids. So you're not in that gang. You're around at home. Um, I'm, af I'm afraid. I'm sorry to say they, they, the, the little girls do get sexually abused, um, and it's 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 heartbreaking, really, um, just because of um, a, a correct a correctable deformity. So uh, we've we've got involved in in in, in measuring well, in trying to measure how lives are changed. You know, in orthopedics, we measure things in angles and how quickly you can walk. And but actually, it, it's a it's a much harder measure measuring how your life's changed, how you can get an education, you can join normal society. What was it that made me get get particularly interested? I I I think there's a lot of people who are interested. Uh, I think modern medicine and modern surgery in the UK is very exciting and very demanding and um, it's a it is a great career and I think a lot of people just uh, do just get caught up in it I do find though that a lot of um, an increasing number of, of young surgeons now and quite a lot of people around it around retirement age say gosh I wish I'd done something like that 
or the youngest ones say, could I be involved in something like that? As the years have gone by, it's a real privilege to uh, mentor some of the younger ones and say, well, you could actually. Let's look at how this could work. Let's look at how during your training, say, you could take a year out, um, go uh, and work under the care of, a, of, a, of an experienced reconstructive surgeon. And um, with modern training, a lot of it's a lot of it's linked to your portfolio and your and, and what you've done. And that's why I say to the guys who are going in the middle of their training, look, speak to your training, speak to who's running the training program, work out how this can actually not just not be a year out, but actually a solid part of your of your training program. And it hasn't been difficult to show how those years are actually an, an amazing benefit to a training. Let's say, for example, you wanted to be a children's orthopedic surgeon in the UK, in let's say, say Wales. And one of the conditions you deal with is club feet. And one of the conditions you deal with is, is um, septic arthritis and, and dys, dysplastic hips. Um, to go to a country where you see club feet so deformed that the kids are having to crawl around on their knees, where you see septic arthritis that's been so destructive that it's destroyed all the joints in a leg, and where you see um, um, dysplastic hips that have come completely out of the back. And it's, it's easy to see how actually a year dealing with the really serious forms of those conditions is actually instructive and helpful to somebody, even if they're going to spend the rest of their life dealing with the, the kids of Cardiff. And um, so, yeah, so we've worked with a lot of trainees in, in, in um, I've worked with a lot of trainees and we've sent dozens to um, start a career in global issues in surgery. And, uh, you know, every, everyone's different. Some people will go just for six months and for a year. Some people say, I've I like this so much. The minute I've finished and, and I'm accredited, I'm, I'm coming back. I've got a colleague who came back and did five years. Another came back and did 10 years. Another came back and did eight years. Um, some who haven't come back to the UK <laughs> yet, actually. They, they, are, they are so engrossed and challenged and interested in the, in the work. Um, I would say that one of the challenges now is... Um, is the, the, there is so much interest in our planet as a global well in global surgery and looking at our planet as a whole i mean we're we're, inter we're interested in just in my lifetime and definitely in your lifetime you know we're now we're now interested in global warming in our planet it, it didn't really exist as a subject when you were born and i hadn't heard much of it until the last 10 years now we're thinking actually you know we're we're a planet we we, we're, we're one people. What we do in one country affects another country. Let's let's see how let's work together. And in and in and in global health, that, um, that that's reflected as well. And in surgery, it's reflected. The internet means we can we can have conversations with colleagues in Malawi. Um, um, we can we 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 can do seminars together and learn things together. And I think one of the exciting things is as the whole 
um, platform of learning and working together changes, uh, looking at ways that we can do it better together. And um, so particularly for me is uh, looking at how senior surgeons in the UK get involved and be and be and be most useful in in improving surgery globally. So you're a, a Christian and a lot of your work is with the church in mind. Can you tell me how you found religion and how um, it affects your work? I am a Christian and I, I, I came to a, a, a firm belief in God and uh, if you like committed myself as a Christian as I started in medical school. I uh, was part of a, a strong church called St. Helens in Bishopsgate, which had a lot of students and we were free to ask any question, any issues, and uh, spent uh, many, a, many an evening discussing and arguing issues about the world. And yeah, so I became a, a, a convinced Christian at that stage. And uh, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you immediately leave um, the UK and go and work in a, in a, in a needy area. And uh, um, I, I believe that uh, God guides people who are interested in, in, in serving him. And so my Christian faith was certainly a big part in guiding me to work in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa um, because of um, the, the, the concern for the weak and the concern, and concern for the poor and concern for those who had uh, been dealt a bad hand by life. So yes, so my Christian faith certainly drew me to that. I say I wouldn't say it was the only thing. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who are as as enthusiastic and as driven in uh, global um, children's reconstructive surgery as I have who don't don't share that faith. And so I but I do share with them uh, the excitement of doing it, the, the reward that we've already talked about of um, of, uh, of, of, get, of getting kids walking again, and the scientific side of of finding newer and better ways of of dealing with things. Yeah, that's that that's that's really what got me involved in it. The the um, there are a lot of Christians involved in medical care in 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 um, low and middle income countries and um there is a, a long and um, splendid history of uh, of, um, of uh, christian mission hospitals which in many countries still are um part of the backbone of of the health service seeing children in, in what can sometimes be sort of described as is really either malformed or in these sort of really bad conditions. You, you even talked about abuse there. Does it ever make you question your religion? It doesn't, no, it doesn't. Um, there's different views of, of a belief in God. And um, there is a, there is a, let's just say, a, a few, if you like, a, a variety of faith that says, God should make all, everything perfect in the world, and there shouldn't mm. be any suffering in the world. Uh, that's not the that's not the view of Christianity that I read in the Bible. In the Bible, there's a there's a lot of suffering. There's there, there's a result. There's there's tangible results of of greed, of abusive leadership, 
of um, starvation, um, of, of, of badly managing the world, of badly managing families, of badly managing countries. And those results aren't magicked away by God. Um, they, 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 they do have to be dealt with. So I have not found my faith shaken by the fact that there is a lot of suffering in the world. So we, we've talked about a lot of, of what you did in, in, um, in Malawi now and in the great sort of scheme of things in Africa. You eventually did come back to Oxford. Can you tell us sort of what brought you back and what you're working on now? Uh, yeah, what brought me back was um, we got we'd had the hospital going for um, when we we'd had the hospital going for a good five years in Malawi, and I felt that it was time for me to step out of the leadership of it and to uh, really to 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 build up and strengthen a, a, a new leadership in the hospital. Um, when you've, when something's been your dream, you've raised the money for it, you've built it and you've set it up. Um, people do come to you with all the issues and, um, sometimes it's, well, some people may want to stay and run, do everything themselves. Actually, for me, I felt no step back, um, let other people spread their wings, develop their leadership skills and, and come back. I also had, um, a boy who was just about to become 10 and would soon be wanting secondary school. Um, and came back in the UK, and um, I wanted to pursue at an academic level some of the issues that I'd started to get involved in, and um, even you know looking at things like the epidemiology of, of conditions that, uh, that cripple and disable children, um, not just in sub-Saharan Africa but in but, but around the world. And coming to Oxford gave me an opportunity and a platform to be involved in that. Um, I didn't uh, stay uninvolved in um, work in Africa and um, continued to work with the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa. We got invited by the Minister of Health in neighbouring country, Zambia, to look at um, building a similar hospital there. So in 2006, after I'd come back to the UK, we opened a, a similar hospital in in um, Lusaka, the capital there. And I had, uh, after we built that second one, I, I, I had an, an unfulfilled dream of a third in Zimbabwe. Um, and that took us a further, that took us a further 16 years, raising the funds, visiting Zimbabwe regularly, finding a right, the right place. And we opened what I think is the biggest best and most beautiful of the kids hospitals in we opened that in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe uh, last year 2021 so I've stayed very involved and prior to COVID I'm uh, traveling out quite a lot as well and finally something that we really like to end on with this podcast is can you tell us about uh, one particular case or one particular surgery that has really stuck with you throughout your career, which you think, well, you know, that is something that I'd love to speak about. I think this is, a, this is an operation I didn't do. Um, okay. uh, but an operation that one of my, one of my colleagues did. 
and uh, there was a little boy, well, little boy, about 13-year-old, who'd had bilateral club feet. And as you know, club feet occur in about one in about um, one in a thousand of, uh, of, of, of all births in pretty much every country in the world. And in the UK, we get them treated very quickly. Um, this boy hadn't had his feet treated. He'd um, tried to walk on them, but as he walked on them, it tilted them into more and more deformity until his feet were twisted right over. And uh, he, if he tried to put his weight on, he was putting his weight on the dorsum of his foot which was so painful and uh, he developed sores there that he got around by, um, well, he couldn't use his feet. He used, he put a pair of flip-flops on his knees and he crawled around on his knees with his feet dragging behind him. And that's how, and that's how he got around. And um, uh, my colleagues in um, the, the, this hospital, um, operated on both feet. It's, it's, it's a relatively, um, I was going to say difficult, it's a relatively um, medium um, degree of difficulty procedure, um, releasing the soft tissues and, and, and taking out some of the um, deformed bone, but got both of, both of his feet straight. And obviously he was in plaster casts for six weeks or so while the wounds were healing. And then um, um, he was able to put, for the first time in his life, on um, a pair of jeans and a pair of old, tatty um, trainers and stand up for the first time of his life. And he stood up and I've got a picture of him just standing there with um, a sort of dirty pink sweatshirt nothing special nothing special at all just 13 year old lad just standing there but just realizing boy his life has changed he used to have to crawl around kneeling in front of people now he can just stand up and lean against a wall um chat to people wander around um his life's completely changed and uh, i <clears throat> i've it's it would that's been, I think that was a very emotional time for me because, you know, we met, we've all been 13 year old boys, you know, your life's changing, the hormones are kicking in, you're thinking of girls. And uh, just for him, he's now on his legs and, and, and starting that phase in his life. And it was uh, an immense, an immense privilege to have seen him. And uh, very, very proud of my colleagues who were able to do that surgery for him. And there's and he's he's not alone. There's hundreds of kids um, that the, the hospitals are treating. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's a fantastic story to end on. It sounds incredible what you've you've done and are still doing. And so, thank you for taking the time to to share with us today what what you've done. And and this it's been a pleasure to talk to you. So, thank you so much. Uh, lovely talking to you as well, Frank. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast where I talk to the incredible Mr. Chris Larvey. Next week is a very special episode where I talk to the Royal College of Surgeons President Mr. Neil Mortensen live at the celebration of surgery conference in Wales. So please join me then.